This is Urgent Matters. Since 2002, Urgent Matters has been the preeminent dissemination vehicle for best practices and cutting-edge innovation related to the delivery of emergency medical care. Broadcast out of George Washington University in Washington, D.C., I am Dr. Andrew Meltzer. Hello, this is Andrew Meltzer, another episode of Urgent Matters podcast. I'm here with Dr. Ben Solomon. He's the clinical director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, the National Institutes of Health. Can you describe that a little bit more just so that our audience knows exactly what kind of work you're doing and what your expertise is? Sure. So I'm a pediatric geneticist uh, by original clinical training, but I've been involved in research uh, pretty much my whole career. Uh, I started out at the NIH, uh, worked in healthcare for a while in some research institutes and clinical institutes, all in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Uh, was in uh, biotech lab industries for a few years, and then as of uh, a few months ago now, have returned to the NIH. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm clinical director of NHGRI, the Genome Research Institute. Um, NHGRI, just to give a sense of how the NIH is set up, it's one of uh, more than 20 different institutes. Um, NHGRI, as the name implies, and as you mentioned, is dedicated to genetic and genomic research and all the different things that that means understanding diseases, treating genetic conditions, developing new technology. Um, I'm in what's called the intramural research program. So my office where I'm sitting now is part of the NIH Clinical Center, which is a, a big research hospital dedicated to understanding conditions again and developing new treatments and, and so on and so forth. Um, so my job is to support all the different research investigators, all the, all the clinical physician scientists, the other clinician scientists, uh, some of the basic scientists, and just help to provide some support and infrastructure uh, so that they can be successful doing their own research, um, and then doing some of my own research as well, uh, which is great and, uh, and which I really enjoy. Okay. So I think specifically I'd like to sort of understand a little bit about your observations about genetic susceptibilities might, might explain the differences in this disease. As you know, there's just a wide expression of phenotypes in this disease. We're seeing um, everything from gastrointestinal disease to kidney failure to altered mental status to loss of smell to full-on ARDS. And um, just wondering if you have started to gain any insight in terms of why some hosts have such different responses. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. It's a, it's a giant and complicated question. I guess to, to jump to the punchline first, not to disappoint, but I don't claim to have any particular insight. And I would say more broadly is that there's not a larger insight that the research and clinical community has yet, at least not that I'm aware of. But what I can do is I can describe some of the efforts to try to get some of those insights about what we call host genetic factors. Um, so to start, uh, I, I guess to, to jump into this, and please interrupt me uh, if things don't make sense or you want me to explain further or if you want me to just shut up because you're tired of hearing about this topic. Um, but if we think about um, a genetic condition or, a, or just a generally clinical condition, we can imagine there's this whole continuum, right? This whole bell curve of how we respond to a condition. And at one end of the bell curve, people might respond really mildly, way more mildly than we might expect. At the other end of the bell curve, people might have much more severe conditions than, than we expect. And most of the people are gonna be in the middle. And that's true of response to coronavirus. That's true of lots of conditions, whether it's asthma or diabetes mellitus or, or weight or hypertension, all these different things. So the theory is that maybe at these extreme ends of the bell curve, we can look at those folks and try to tease out, are there underlying genetic factors that make someone either have a much more severe disease when otherwise we'd expect them to be more mildly affected, or conversely have a much more mild disease when we might expect them to have a more severe category infected of, uh, category of disease. Um, 
overall, there's lots of genetic factors and lots of non-genetic factors that are all interacting in this very complicated way. But theoretically, we can try to look at those those ends and try to try to make sense so of things. Is that the research that's going on? You're taking the real mild cases and the real severe cases, doing genotyping, and then seeing where the differences are. So that's that's part of it. You know, people are looking at the middle of the bell curve mm -hmm. too. But there have been successes in the past with conditions like this um, and other conditions where understanding those extremes help us not only understand who's susceptible, but also underlying biologically what's going on. And so, for example. When people in the past and still currently are, are, are uh, studying genetic immunodeficiencies, sometimes we can look at those people with immunodeficiencies and say, okay, now we know why these folks are way more susceptible than the rest of us to certain conditions, and we can, under, we can understand the biology. Maybe that leads to new therapeutics or new ways to manage these diseases. So getting back, I guess, to just what's actually going on, I'll just mention two studies, um, and th there are many other studies, so I don't mean to pick on certain ones and not others, but I'll just mention two that I think might be of interest to, to your audience. Um, one is this, this large consortium of studies it's called the Host Genetics Initiative going on in uh, you know, many dozens of, uh, of different institutes all over the world. Uh, NHGRI, the NIH, is, is participating in this and, and is part of this. Um, and the idea is exactly what I said, is to get genetic information um, and other biological data around people and try to understand why certain people are affected differently than others. Um, you basically need three things to try to to find these answers, right? To try to find the answers. One is you simply need big statistical numbers, lots of people participating, because you can't compare one person versus another, just one person and get answers. You need big numbers to get statistical power. What kind um, of numbers are we talking? So it's it's a great question. So all these power calculations can be tricky, but if you but if you look at kind of a traditional GWAS, a genome-wide um, association study, they might do tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of people. The idea is that maybe we can be really clever about it and with less people, with maybe some of these extremes, we could do some of these studies. But it all depends on, it all depends on what type of DNA analysis you're doing. So um, for example, I guess to answer your question more directly, uh, 23andMe, you might have seen in the news, uh, launched a study on, uh, on this coronavirus susceptibility, why some people are more affected than others. And they have the virtue of having access to data on many, many millions of people. So with that kind of data, one might get answers, even though the platform they're doing um, isn't, isn't uh, looking at lots of different spots in the genetic information compared to, say, a whole genome. They're looking at many hundreds of thousands to millions of spots, but they're not sequencing the whole genome. But the idea is just lots and lots of numbers, you can get some answers. So you need three things. So statistical power, kind of like that 23andMe study. Uh, you need good biological data. And so that might be uh, whole genome sequencing or whole exome sequencing where you look at just the genes or more of a microarray, more of a targeted approach like, like uh, 23andMe does, and maybe other biological data as well. And then the third thing, going back to your question that you need, is you need really good phenotyping, right? So you need to know clinically very, very exactly, very precisely, where does this person fit? What are their symptoms? What are their signs? How old are they? What's the demographic data? So you can try to tease out all those different variables. And it gets really, really complicated, as you can imagine, because there's so many different variables. But looking at all those things hopefully allows us statistically arrive at some answers about why someone may be more uh, susceptible than the next. And then again, maybe it can start to underlock some of the underlying biology. And that what can lead us to things like developing new treatments or understanding of how to best manage different folks or different populations and so on and so forth. So in this consortium that's going across multiple institutes in multiple countries, how do you organize that collection of data? I mean, I understand the collection of 
DNA. That makes a little bit more sense to me. But the collection of phenotypes actually seems even more complicated. How do you have a, a similar data collection sheet across all these hospitals, institutes, and doctors? And then um, how do you also, I guess, extract that data? How do you know it's reliable? Um, it seems hard, even at my own institution, where I'm trying to do single center studies, trying to uh, make get reliable data around that phenotype. Yeah, and no, I think it's a, it's a great question. And like pretty much everything you're going to ask me, I don't have an easy answer. For that. <laughs> Other than I'll say that it's it's really important, and lots of folks who have focused on these types of studies before have been working on this. Um, mm -hmm. And but it, this has happened quickly, but are working on exactly what you're talking about. Because if you don't do it well, you're going to end up with tons of data, but not necessarily good data. Um, there's multiple steps that can that can be done to try to address this. Um, just kind of in general. So one is just as you mentioned, you want to have lots of pre-planning and thinking about what kind of data we want to collect and, and can we automatically get data, for example, from health records and from other data sources like that. That's one. And then number two, are there a combination of manual and automated approaches to cleaning that data, to abstracting the data? And that can be done in you know, good old-fashioned ways with people with clinical knowledge or populating databases. And there can be more automated ways and you know, all, the, all the fancy buzzwords we hear about with AI and machine learning, extracting data automatically. But there needs to be a cleaning and standardization process as well. And, and it is very difficult. Um, but just as you said, it's really, really important to get it right as well. Yeah, so you used to work in the lab industry, and I mean, in the last few days, I'm getting now emails about all these vendors now with antibody testing. Prior to that, we were only doing the RT-PCR testing. Um, I honestly don't even know exactly how to sort of sort these vendors in terms of which ones I should trust and which ones I should use. The FDA is clearing these things so quickly. Um, just coming from your perspective of having worked in that industry, how should a clinician sort of go up? about this? I mean, obviously, I think we all sort of understand the difference between the RT-PCR detecting the active viral antigens versus the uh, IgG, IgM antibody testing for uh, detecting prior infection. But um, just sort of choosing which ones to use, when to use it, and then having a larger understanding of, is it possible for us to really do this on a, a large scale, I guess? Uh, that's, that's obviously a it's sort of different question for you. It's more of a logistical question, but in terms of the, uh, the general pipeline of these uh, the materials needed. Yeah, so I guess maybe I'll divide up my response and as usual, I'll probably babble on way longer than you want, but I'll divide up the response into two different halves. So first let's talk about the, the active infection or the recent infection, the, the PCR-based testing for the presence of virus. And then let's talk about antibody testing uh, both because there's there's just some intrinsic differences um, and because they're at different stages, just as you mentioned about the availability and, and approval and so on and so forth. So first, you know, as we know, and, and I think, you know, we heard on the news just this morning, for example, and last night is that, is that unfortunately what we're seeing is that some of the testing that we were seeing ramping up nicely is now starting to level off the number of tests that are, that are happening. And that's happening for reasons that, that make sense, but are still frustrating and, and, and difficult. And it's just this vast supply chain issue, right? And so I think of each lab, whether it's no matter what platform they're doing, whether it's the rapid things that you've seen, the Abbott machines that you've seen at the more of the point of care or the big high throughput machines at some of the big labs. So it's like this mousetrap, that game of mousetrap, right? That board game. And each of the different components is really important, whether that's the swabs, whether that's the people in the lab doing the testing, the PPE those people have to wear, the people collecting the tests, uh, the reagents, um, all the different pieces, the, the machinery they actually have to do it, getting things from point A to point B. And because there are so many different solutions, and I intentionally call them that, but so many different ways to, to test, 
there's not going to be one big one size fits all one giant lab so piecing all those things together and getting coordination around that you know is very tricky and maybe one piece is available here now but isn't available then and isn't available at a different place so coordinating all that is really important you know i'm I tend to be an optimistic person. Person, I'm cautiously optimistic that you know we've seen the ramp up, we've seen a plateau, and then we'll see a ramp up in testing again. And as we know, that's really, really, really important to be able to do things that I think all of us want, like hopefully eventually, sooner rather than later, return to normalcy. Um, the other part of the, the equation um, is, or one other part of the, this very complicated equation uh, has to do with the antibody testing. We know there, there are literally dozens and dozens of different tests uh, that have been uh, sent to the FDA for approval, um, and and some of them appear to be better than others. Some of them appear, frankly, not to be particularly terrific. Um, so one thing is sorting through all those to make sure that uh, that we know the accuracy of those. We know the the sensitivity and the specificity, and based on the population prevalence, so we know that if someone gets a positive test, does that mean they really are more likely to have a false positive or more likely to actually have antibodies? And so that's going to be, you know, I think clearly going to be a work in progress. It's going to take take a, take a while. Um, there have been some some good signs. For example, the University of Washington, and just for the point of confusion, when I say Washington, I mean not our Washington area, but Washington State. They are one of the leaders early on um, in the the virologic testing, right, and the testing for for infections uh, weeks ago, and 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 they've now seem to be doing uh, relative, you know seem to be one of the, the, the faster ones about rolling out accurate antibody tests. Um, so there's, there's good signs like that, and, and certainly some of the big labs are doing that as well. I just think it's going to be, again, just like it's going to be parallel or have some similarities to the, the, the PCR-based testing. Again, going back to your question about which one should I trust, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. I think in certain situations, these, these rapid point-of-care type tests make more sense, but they're limited, right, because you have to do one at a time. And as we know, that you can have a machine, but you might not have the testing kit, which is, which is frustrating. So there's multiple pieces to that puzzle. Um, and those are great, but they can't do tons and tons of tests in a day, each machine, whereas a big high-throughput lab can do tons and tons of tests but then you get the complications of having to send the test from point A to point B, having to you know, report it back, and everything involved in that. Sorry, can I say one more thing, if that's okay, just kind of in terms of cool genetics? Of course. Okay, so, um, you know, one of the things that's been in the news a lot over the last, uh, you know, years before the coronavirus is this whole CRISPR and gene editing thing. Um, there's been some neat research out uh, about this new gene editing techniques, both as ways to, as a way to test for the, the condition, so kind of modifying the, the CRISPR uh, uh, that, that technology to be able to do a rapid test for it. There was a new paper that came out within the last day or two in, in, a, in Nature Biotechnology, I believe, on that. And then the other thing is also, is there ways that CRISPR can be modified to actually attack the coronavirus as a treatment? Obviously, all this is, is brand new early stuff, so it's not like tomorrow there'll be something, but it's, you know, I, I just think it's fascinating that lots of very, very smart people are, are using these technologies to attack the, the current uh, questions and, and problems. Yeah, it seems like there's basically one disease now. So CRISPR, that, that's really interesting. So basically, the CRISPR would essentially edit the RNA COVID virus in a way that it still spreads, but now it serves almost as a live vaccine because it's now no longer virulent. Is yeah, so the idea? Um, so, so I think there, there's different there's there's different things that have been tried and will be tried, and certainly there's probably a lot going on that I'm not that, not that aware of. Um, but for example, if we, again, go back to those two categories, the, the CRISPR editing for detection, it would modify the virus um, such that when this modification happens, it sends out a signal 
um, and that you know that's your rapid test. You know, maybe within within not not at the rate that days, but in, in minutes. I don't know the exact number of minutes, but immediately you know that you have the answer. Uh, the other, um, and I've just you know read a couple articles about about this. The other, where you're attacking the virus, um, the idea is that you're attacking the virus and reducing the viral load, right? Such that the maybe it's not quite as as dangerous to get uh, to get exposed to it, right? So it's it's just reducing the amount of virus. And I'm sure there will be other t um, attempts and applications with some of these technologies as well. And again, you know, for, for full disclosure, this is not an area where my specific research focuses. Um, so I'm sure there are people that are much more expert than I on some of the CRISPR applications. Uh, it's not something I thought about. So there's like in vivo CRISPR. Yes, yeah, so, you know, so, so, you know, it's fat. So to go back and, and I, by the way, I should say, I guess as part of an a uh, way of advertisement. A lot of these concepts are explained much better than I can. Uh, just very recently, PBS aired this two-part documentary, The Gene, based on the book by Siddhartha Mukherjee, and it talks about all of these concepts, um, uh, and, and better than I, including CRISPR, including GWASs, including all the things that we've been talking about. But yeah, so CRISPR for a while, lots of applications to cancer, to inherited genetic diseases, and the idea is that you could change uh, someone's DNA um, in order to, to treat a disease. Um, and in this case, we're trying to change the viral RNA, right, to either detect the virus or to make, hopefully, you know, help us be able to manage or treat the, the, the virus. Uh, switching gears a little bit, there's been a lot of talk about a variety of treatments, and I think the one that's gotten the most press is chloroquine. Is there concern in your mind about overuse of some of these treatments and creating mutations and creating um, resistant strains? Yeah, it, it's it's a good question. Um, you know, again, like like many things, I think it's 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 early to tell. Um, you know, I think the most important thing is having, of course, as a as a physician scientist, just like yourself, having good randomized controlled trials, so we know what's working and what's not working, and what some of the side effects are. You know, I think that's the most important thing. Um, you know, this question about the virus changing or mutating, maybe if it's okay with you, I could address in a, in a slightly different way because I think that's a whole nother interesting field of genetics and genomics. If is that okay to talk about that? Definitely. Okay, good. So, so I think there's a number of really interesting strands, no, no pun intended here, with, with looking at the viral genome. Uh, so just to go back to make sure we're on the, all on the same page, you know, there's different types of viruses. We all know some can be DNA, some can be RNA, there can be double-stranded or, or different types of RNA viruses. Um, and there's been really fascinating genetic research on the, the viral, the coronavirus genome itself, um, and with some really useful applications. For example, one way that it's been applied, uh, as we saw the big headlines of that in New York, it looked like most of the, uh, maybe the coronavirus was imported from Europe versus other parts of the world. Um, or let's say, you know, in Seattle a few months ago or, or weeks ago now, I'm losing track of time, they did, uh, they were doing some similar studies saying it looks like these were separate introductions, these infections were separate introductions from, from another place then rather than community spread and, and things like that. So being able to track the little changes within the virus genome is really important for that. The other thing that it seems to have given uh, a lot of evidence for is the fact that it's a, this seems to be a, a naturally occurring virus. In other words, something that went from a, uh, an animal host to a human host versus there was some concern and questions, was this something that was created uh, in a lab? And uh, there was, there was some, uh, some data out that suggested that m that might be possible. And it looks like all the analyses are showing that that's very, very, very unlikely, right? That, that this is, looks like a naturally occurring uh, type thing. Um, and that's 
by comparing it to viruses that have been that uh, you know in in animals and and so on and so forth and trying to figure out what the what the first host was and so some really interesting uh, stuff there. There's also been a lot of stuff in the in the press recently about and there's a great by the way I think two nights ago uh, an NIH scientist Kizzy Dr. Kizzy Corbett was on with uh, Anderson Cooper on CNN and one of the questions that they asked was. Um, so you, let's say we do a vaccine and, and it works. Um, could the virus change? Could it have a mutation? Could it change such that the virus doesn't work anymore? Uh, you know, the short answer is we don't know. There's been lots of literature on this. Uh, it's possible the virus, you know, we expect all viruses to have changes. There's already over 10 changes that we've seen in the coronavirus. I think 11 is the, the number that I've seen, 11 changes that are seen. It's all still one strain, but 11 changes. Um, but, we, but it's still all one strain. Um, the measles virus, for example, you know, it, it, it go, undergoes lots of different uh, genetic changes, but the same vaccine that worked back in 1950s uh, for measles still works today, right, without, without, without changes, versus the influenza virus that we know because of changes, mutations, genetic changes that it has, one has to keep um, designing uh, new types of the vaccine. So it's not clear which direction uh, it'll go yet. Um, most of the changes, I should say, in the coronavirus, it, it seems, um, wouldn't necessarily change the vaccine strategy, right? But, you know, only time will tell. Yeah, I think that's really good points and uh, really interesting to see. I think we all thought, described this as something originating in China. Obviously, our president was calling it the Chinese disease and was trying to get a lot of credit for shutting down travel from China in January, but when we looked at the uh, cases in New York, as you said, they mostly came from Europe. Uh, it shows how quickly this spread all the way around the world. And so, again, we, like you said, we don't know if this is going to be like measles or like influenza, and hopefully these mutations don't affect the antigens and allow for stable treatment because these things are, as you know, constantly mutating. I think um, just sort of as we start to close up, I was just sort of getting your sense about how optimistic you are about the future. I mean, I've been sort of inspired by how scientists around the world are collaborating and working together to try to solve this across multi, every specialty you can think of really, uh, both within medicine and uh, across disciplines too. And uh, I was wondering, since you're sort of inside the house of NIH, how you've sort of perceived that. And uh, if you could just sort of speak to that, I think people would like to know that uh, our scientific leaders are how they're working together, I guess. <laughs> well, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm biased as, as, as a part of the NIH, but I think it's been just tremendously inspiring and, and just terrific to see everybody working so hard on this, everybody coordinating people from where I work and other centers and other, in other uh, parts of the country, other parts of the world, you know, sharing data, working together uh, in a, I guess, a collaborative versus competitive way. I think that's been really, really just terrific and, and great to see. And I think it's one of the hopefully many things that will continue um, after this gets over, just a sense of data sharing and collaboration and, and, uh, and, and working together. You know, I guess maybe in an analogous way, uh, some, a lot of my clinical geneticist colleagues seeing patients with genetic conditions are successfully using a lot more telemedicine and that's been a, a positive thing. And so hopefully that those, some of those applications to make things easier for patients uh, will continue um, after, after this all gets back to normalcy, hope um, earlier, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. But I've seen that, you know, I've, we, getting back to your original question, we, I've seen a lot of inspiring uh, work, a lot of really brilliant people doing, doing incredible stuff on this, um, which has been great. I think it's also important though, just like, you know, you, when you're in the ER, 
you're treating a lot of coronavirus, I'm sure, but there's still people that are coming in because of diabetic crises, because of heart attacks. And so it's equally important that folks at the NIH and elsewhere are still continuing, you know, those of, those of us who do, to focus on, on all the other you know, issues in healthcare and in life, because those, those, those remain very, very important and will remain important when this gets over. And again, I hope this all gets over much sooner rather than later. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've known Ben a long time and uh, he is constantly embarrassing his kids with really lame DNA jokes. And I was wondering if you could close this podcast out with a <laughs> final uh, genetics or a DNA joke and uh, putting you on the spot here, but I'm sure you have a wide array of <laughs> jokes. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm known for my terrible jokes. Maybe not a, a, a DNA joke so much, but uh, um, I'll tell uh, maybe an epidemiological joke that uh, another mutual friend of ours uh, told, which is, uh, why don't uh, mountain climbers get malaria? And it's because vectors and scalars don't cross. I guess you could insert coronavirus now, but I'm trying to change the subject a little bit. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much. And that concludes today's podcast on Urgent Matters. I want to thank Dr. Solomon for joining us. And uh, stay tuned for our next episode and uh, visit our website. And uh, we should have uh, other material and webinars coming out soon. So thanks very much. Thank you. Urgent Matters was founded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in 2002. Since then, it has served as a dissemination vehicle for the best practices in emergency care through our webinars, podcasts, newsletters, issue briefs, innovation awards, and national meetings. Currently sponsored by the Ronald Reagan Institute of Emergency Medicine at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., Urgent Matters supports innovative care strategies and is a resource for the ED community to discover field-tested new initiatives that can be tailored to their local practice or organization. Our editorial board consists of a holistic group of stakeholders, including ASEP, West Health, EDPMA, and AACCP. Your background, is that Rosalind Franklin's uh, an original x-ray, looks like? Yeah. So very impressive, yes. So that is a, that, that's a picture 51, no relation to Area 51, I believe, but picture 51 that Rosalind Franklin uh, took. And this was one of the nicest images in the series of images that she took to try to understand the nature of DNA and, and part of the reason that structure of DNA was figured out a big part of it.